please welcome back Mr. Brendan McGuire. Oh, hey, thanks, guys. Now, I just ha I have one thing that has to be dealt with up front, because I've been asked about it several times. Uh, last time I was here, as you know, I was ill. Sabatino let you guys know I was ill. Thank you for your patience last week. Um, but uh, it turned out, I, I ended up in the hospital Friday night, and it turned out, ultimately, I did not have appendicitis, which was good. Uh, so I, I had another condition. It was a lymph node condition. It went away on its own by Monday, so I'm good to go now. Uh, so, thank you, thank you for your, your patience, yeah. Um, and uh, thank you, thank you for your patience last week with me cutting off the Q&A period, sorry about that. Uh, but anyway, uh, so, here we are. We, we left off when Napoleon had seized control of France in 1799. And so let's take a moment to think about what this represents, right? You have the man whose military prowess has rendered him more popular than the revolutionary government itself. Right? He's by far the most popular figure in revolutionary France. And now he plans to take the helm in 1799, to take the helm of a revolutionary government that's guided by an internal logic of expansionism. Think about that. The revolution in France brings into existence an internal logic of expansionism. How? How is that? Revolution implies the need for aggressive military expansion. Right? Why? For obvious reasons. Right? The logic of revolution, the logic specifically of the French Revolution, is that no one may reign innocently. No one in Europe can reign innocently. Right? And so the logic of the revolution threatens every throne. It threatens every power. It threatens the church. It threatens every stable institution in European life, right? Now, foreign governments are aware of this, right? And so it's, it's easy for the revolutionary government to kind of create the specter of external threats that require preemptive action, right? And this is why, from the very beginning of the revolution, France is involved in wars with its neighbors, constant wars with England, which date back even before the revolutionary period, right? but also wars against the Austrians, wars against the Holy Roman Empire, wars in Italy, eventually wars that bring it into conflict with Russia and the Turks, right? These wars are dictated by the internal logic of the revolution, right? And now the man whose unique military genius has rendered him the most popular European, right, has taken control of this revolutionary apparatus, right? And he's going to, he intends fully to use his genius, right, to guide the aggressive military expansion of the French revolutionary entity right, across the entire face of Europe. Right? So, having seized control of the regime in 1799, Bonaparte's next move the following year, 1800, was into Italy again. Because right? he had been gone for a while. You'll remember Napoleon had been gone. He had been in Egypt. Right? He had been far away across the Mediterranean. While he was gone, the Austrians had re-entered northern Italy and reoccupied it. Right? So in 1800, Napoleon's first move is back into Italy to drive out the Austrians, to expand French conquests at the expense of the Austrians, and to beat the Austrians into submission. This he does in the course of a single year. By 1801, the Austrians were brought to the bargaining table, and they signed the humiliating treaty of Lunéville. Right? which guaranteed the French control of all of northern Italy and everything that they had conquered from the Austrians. Right? Now, 
In the meantime, Napoleon is setting up camp for his next very ambitious project, the invasion of England. Right? Napoleon set up a military camp at Bouillon-sur-Mer, right? right across the English Channel from Britain. Right? But in the meantime, by 1801, if you think about it, by 1801, France and Britain had been at war almost continuously right, for well over a century. Both countries are exhausted by war. And so almost out of nowhere, in 1801, peace breaks out. Very strange moment in the history of Napoleon Bonaparte's career. Uh, the Peace of Amiens, as it's called, was signed in 1801, in October of 1801. Right? And this gives rise to a very uneasy peace, a peace that would last only until 1803. Right? Now, just to give you a sense of how uneasy this peace is, if it can even be called a peace, Right. Neither side of the, of not, neither party in this Treaty of Amiens really abides by the terms of the treaty. Right. The British pledged to withdraw from French possessions around the Mediterranean that they had occupied after the Battle of the Nile. Do the British withdraw? No, of course not. Right. The French, in the meantime, the French had promised to halt their expansionism. Do they do this? No. Bonaparte, in fact, annexes large swaths of northern Italy during the peace, including Piedmont, right, and incorporates them into the French state. Right. Now, Napoleon does something else in this period. He mediates in Switzerland, right? overthrows the traditional governments in the cantons of Switzerland, and brings about a new Swiss confederation drawn up along French revolutionary and Napoleonic principles. Right? So we see Napoleon still operative in European politics on the continent in ways that he shouldn't have been, given the peace. And we see the British refusing to withdraw from various maritime colonial possessions that they had promised to evacuate. Right? France had other troubles during the peace. Right? Uh, for example, there was a rebellion in Haiti. Right? The black residents of Haiti, under the, le the famous leadership of Toussaint Louverture, right? They rebel against Napoleon's government in 1802, and they rebel successfully, right? Napoleon can't suppress the Haitian Revolution. Finally, right, Napoleon is faced with the, with the prospect of reigniting the war with England. He realizes by 1803, the British fully intend to go back to war with him. Faced with this imminent prospect of war with Britain, again, bankruptcy for the state, um, inability to control his American possessions, Bonaparte decides to sell off the vast majority of his American possessions and focus on Europe. Right? And this is where we get the Louisiana Purchase, as you all know, in 1803. Uh, guess how much all the land west of the Mississippi was? Three cents an acre, we all learn in grade school. Three cents an acre, right? It gets it off Napoleon's hands. He doesn't have to defend American continental possessions against the English, and it gives us the St. Louis Cardinals. Anyway, um, <laughs> so, yeah. And the 1904 World's Fair, too. <laughs> but they still talk about that in St. Louis. It's the only thing that ever happened there. So. <laughs> no, I, I lived in St. Louis for a few years, so I can, I can make fun of them with, with very good will. Um, anyway, uh, Napoleon's um, conduct during the period of the peace also brought him into closer relations with the Catholic Church. Remember, we talked last time about how Napoleon was a man driven by pragmatism rather than ideology. Right? It's a simplification for sure, right? but it gives us some insight into his conduct. Napoleon actually arranged for an agreement with the papacy in 1801 
uh, Napoleon Bonaparte and Pope Pius VII signed uh, one of these treaties that the church often signs with civil governments. It's called a concordat. Right? So this concordat between Napoleon's government and the papacy is concluded in 1801. It allows the Catholic Church to practice uh, the faith freely in France for the first time really uh, since the reign of terror, right? For the first time since the early 1790s, you have some kind of genuinely free practice of Catholicism in France. Uh, on the other hand, the Concordat specifically, it very specifically allows for unprecedented freedom for other religions, other sects, other uh, religious practices to be engaged in throughout France, right? So this, it's a defeat in some sense for the church, the previous position that the church had occupied in French society uh, it would never really occupy again. Right? The church is now one religion alongside many in France. But at least there's some kind of free exercise for Catholicism now, and the Pope is willing to take it. Right? We also see during the piece Napoleon working on his famous civil code, the Napoleonic Code of Civil Law, which is still the basis for law in most of continental Europe and, uh, and Louisiana. Yeah, and Latin America, yeah, in, in a vast majority of, of the European world and the world that's descended from Europe. So, uh, Napoleon's civil code, it's one of these things, it's, it is the Enlightenment in action, right? Napoleon's civil code is very much the Enlightenment in action. Napoleon genuinely believed that by establishing some kind of, some kind of tenuous coexistence between liberty and equality of opportunity, Right? You could have a free and prosperous society. Napoleon had a tremendous optimism about his civil code, um, but human nature remains human nature. Uh, in any event, Napoleon faces some very serious and genuine plots against him in these early years of his rule over France. Uh, for example, in October 1800, you have the famous uh, Conspiration des Poignards, right? Uh, the conspiracy of the daggers, right? Uh, and, you know, th th this was a, a Jacobin thing. You also have royalist plots against him, right? Finally, in January of 1804, Napoleon's personal police undercovered a very serious assassination plot, uh, which was, it, it had some kind of tenuous connection to the Bourbon family in exile, right? Napoleon uses this assassination plot as an excuse to spring his next the next stage in his ambitious plan, right? Publicizing the details of this assassination plot against him, right? Inflaming public anger against the Bourbon, Napoleon decides the time has come to aggrandize himself beyond any previous stature that he's held. He's been, what's his title been up until now? He's been the first consul of the French Republic, right? Napoleon decides the time for first consuls is over. These assassination plots clearly indicate the need for a hereditary succession of some kind. But he will never call himself king. Why? Because to call himself king would to be, that would be to evoke the ancien regime, right? They had kings. Kings go along with church and all that other stuff, right? But, like most figures of the Enlightenment era, Napoleon looked back with um, real nostalgia towards classical Rome. But what did they have in Rome? They had emperors, right? And so Napoleon announces his intention in 1804 to begin the French Empire, right? And he has himself crowned by Pope Pius VII 
uh, in December of 1804, and he has his wife, Josephine, crowned Empress of France. Right? He then went down to Milan in 1805 and had himself crowned with the iron crown of the Lombards. Right? So his ambition really knows no bounds here. He declares himself to be the empire. And he declares his generals to be no longer generals, but marshals, marshals of the empire. Right? Now, it's at this point that one of the greatest composers of the early 19th century plays a, a bit part in Napoleon's life. You all know Beethoven, right? Now, it's around this time Beethoven had composed his, his third symphony, right? Beethoven's third symphony is um, one, of, it's one of those symphonies that musical scholars will debate about, whether or not this is the first romantic symphony, right? Or whether it's another one, whether it's Beethoven's ninth or something like that. But Beethoven's third is a good candidate for first romantic composition, right? To mark the beginning of a new era in music. And originally it was dedicated to Napoleon, right? But Beethoven, quite famously, when he heard Napoleon calling himself Emperor of the French, Beethoven tore the dedication page off of his third symphony, right? Beethoven was committed to the other Napoleon, the, the friendly Napoleon, the, the, the Napoleon who championed the democratic ideals of the revolution, not this overweening emperor guy, right? But you see, Napoleon being emperor, it's a logical conclusion of everything that he's done previously, right? This is not a break from Napoleon's previous conduct in any way, shape, or form, right? In the meantime, 1805 would be a banner year for Napoleon in a variety of ways. Because by 1805, Britain had convinced Austria and Russia to join in another coalition of allies against France. Right? This would be the third coalition of that name, the third coalition that had been formed since the French Revolution. So Britain, Austria, and Russia combined against France. And this is an intimidating combination here for the French. The Austrians and the Russians combined could field vast armies on France's eastern flank, right? while the English had a fleet which controlled the seas. It controlled the Mediterranean, the English fleet did, as well as the Atlantic. And in fact, the English fleet for years since the Revolution had kept the French fleet bottled up in its various ports. Right? It's, it's almost impossible to exaggerate the difference in leadership qualities, experience, skill, courage, and morale between the French Navy on the one hand and the English Navy on the other. Right? The British Navy, by 1805, had an officer corps that was seasoned with years of experience at sea, years of experience on blockade, years of experience conducting every, every conceivable maneuver that you would conduct with these great ships of war. Right? The French officer corps had been decimated in the revolution, right? and then subsequent to that, the, the replacement officers had really been unable to gain genuine sea experience because they had been blockaded in their ports, two major ports, one at Brest in Brittany on the Atlantic and the other at Toulon in the Mediterranean. Right? And so the, the difference in skill and power and experience and, and even morale between the British and French cannot be exaggerated. Now, the British Navy was funny at this time. You, you, you have to keep in mind, something about the British Navy that you have to understand in order to understand the Napoleonic Wars, and that is this. The British encouraged their officers to be courageous to the point of utter recklessness and utter disregard of their own lives. Now, how do you do that? 
How do you encourage military officers to be courageous and reckless to the point of disregard of their own lives? Well, they would court-martial officers who showed any sort of lack of aggression or lack of enthusiasm. There was the infamous case in the 18th century of Admiral Bing, right? who was a Lord Admiral, had been commanding the Mediterranean fleet for the Royal Navy, and at one point had pursued a French fleet off Gibraltar, then returned to guard Gibraltar from a potential French invasion without pursuing the French fleet. Right? Admiral Bing was then court-martialed for failing to pursue the enemy with the necessary uh, abandon, right? And Admiral Bing was shot. Okay. So you can see what this would do to the morale of British officers, right? <laughs> British officers never really gave up. They would fling themselves with a kind of a reckless abandon into battle. They would pursue enemy ships ruthlessly, right? And so you have a, a vast, vast difference in, in the way the English Navy conducted itself uh, compared to the French or the Spaniards or anyone else at the time, right? So, in the year 1805, Napoleon comes up with a, an ingenious plan, right, to help him conduct his long-awaited invasion of Britain, right? Now, here's the plan, right? Here, here's the plan if you're Napoleon. You've got a fleet in Brest. You've got a, free, a fleet in Toulon, right? The fleet in Brest is blockaded. The fleet in Toulon is only very loosely blockaded. Now, why is that? It's because you have two different English admirals with two different views of naval tactics. Admiral Cornwallis is blockading Brest, and he kept Brest very, very closely blockaded, right? He kept his ships right up the gut, literally right up in the Goulet Harbor, right, at Brest, kept the French Navy bottled up in there. The admiral in the Mediterranean, on the other hand, was Horatio Lord Nelson, right? And Nelson's attitude was a little different. Nelson thought... Uh, you know, kind of, like, kind of like a free safety that hangs back, looking for the running back to come, you know. <laughs> Nelson thought, if I hang back from the port a little bit, if I keep my ships of the line out of sight, right, and over the horizon a good distance, maybe I can tempt the French to come out of the harbor and then go get them, engage them in, in close battle. Right? As a result, what happens is the French fleet that had been in Toulon which was commanded by Admiral Villeneuve, was able to slip out. They slipped out of Toulon in 1805 and sailed to the West Indies. Right? Now, at this point, Admiral Nelson pursues them. He pursues them out of the Mediterranean right, and waits for them to come back. He knows what the plan is. The plan is for this fleet from the West Indies to draw the English forces out of the Channel and off the blockade of Brest and thus to leave the English Channel open for French invasion. Right? Finally, this French fleet came back, and it, it ended up seeking refuge in the port at Cadiz on the southwestern coast of Spain, where Nelson found them and blockaded them in there very closely. Right? This, French, this French fleet that was in Cadiz, commanded by Admiral Villeneuve, was then faced with a very troubling uh, choice. They received explicit orders from Napoleon to sail forth, challenge Lord Nelson to battle, beat him, come back up to Brest, defeat Admiral Cornwallis, get the fleet out of Brest, and go invade England. That's what Napoleon told them to do. Now, Admiral Villeneuve was no fool. Right? He knew that that would never happen. Right? So what Villeneuve, being the good democratic French revolutionary fellow that he was, what he decided to do was to take a straw poll among his captains and say, who wants to leave Cadiz? 
uh, it was pretty unanimous. No one really wanted to leave Cadiz. <laughs> Hard to blame them, right? So they hung out in Cadiz for a while until Villeneuve received word that his replacement had arrived in Madrid. Now, at, at Villeneuve at that point did what anyone would do whose replacement had arrived in Madrid, and that is to convince his captains, no, 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 now would actually be a good time to leave Cadiz, right? Uh, Villeneuve, in fact, he, he had as an excuse the fact that six British ships had just detached themselves from Nelson's squadron. They had headed into Gibraltar for provisions, right? And then they were then grabbed by the port admiral in Gibraltar and used for other purposes, right? And so there, you have a slight reduction in the force of the British fleet, which uh, Villeneuve uses as, as an excuse to convince his captains that it will be safe to come forth from Cadiz. And so the French emerged from Cadiz in line of battle, right, with very, very weak winds, very light airs bearing them forth. Now, here's the interesting thing about the battle that ensues, and, and you know the name of this battle. It, it occurs off a cape on the Spanish coast called Trafalgar right, in 1804. Now, what happens is this. I, I have my marker here. So we're going to take a look at the Battle of Trafalgar. You know what the most common tactic of naval battle was in the Age of Sail, right? It was, it was called a line of battle tactic, right? Now, to, ha to create a line of battle in the Age of Sail, in the 18th and early 19th centuries, uh, you need line of battle ships. What are line of battle ships as opposed to other ships? Line of battle ships, at this point in naval history, usually had at least 74 guns. They would mount 74 guns. That was, that was a third-rate ship. Right? A ship that mounted 98 guns was a second-rate ship, and a ship that mounted 100 or more was called a first-rate ship. Right? So you had these line-of-battle ships. The 74s were the backbone of your, of your line of battle. And the old strategy was something like this. You line up your ships, right? and you bring them into action against the enemy in parallel lines. So here's your enemy over here. You sail up alongside them, and you simply engage them yard arm to yard arm with broadsides. Right? And hopefully that your weight of metal is either superior to your enemies, or that you can board the enemy's ship, or something like that. Board in the smoke. I mean, it would be very, very chaotic, kind of a melee. Right? Now, what Nelson decided to do was very different. What Nelson decided to do was not to engage in this kind of line of battle activity, but rather to sail in perpendicular to the French line, like this, to sail in this way and break the French line. Now, Nelson's plan has some weaknesses, as you can imagine. You know where the guns are on these ships. The guns are on the sides, right? So if you're sailing in this way, oh, thanks. If you're sailing in this way, woo and the guns are on the sides, what's going to happen to your ships? Can you engage them at all while you're approaching this way? Not really. Not really. The, the front ship might have bow chasers on it. That might give you a combined 18 pounds weight of metal while you're being fired upon by 2,000 pounds weight of metal. Right? Not very good odds. But Nelson's risk was a calculated one. Horatio Lord Nelson felt that since the, the combined crews of these French and Spanish ships had not been practiced in gunnery or trained in gunnery, 
And he, knowing that Admiral Villeneuve was 2,000 men short of his complement, right, knowing that he had supplemented his gun crews with soldiers who didn't know how to fire on a sloping, pitching deck, right, Nelson decided it was worth the risk, and it turned out to be the case. Nelson and his ships broke through the French line, raked the ships, ran up alongside the rest of the fleet while the French flagships and ships in the vanguard turned around, desperately tried to tack or wear to come and engage with the British ships. And at the end of the day, 22 French ships were destroyed. Zero English ships were destroyed. Right. The battle at Trafalgar was a completely one-sided action. Right. Everything that Nelson had envisioned went according to plan except that Nelson himself was killed. Right? Uh, he was hit by a bullet which lodged itself in, in his spine between two of his vertebrae. And of course, they didn't have surgery for that kind of thing back in 1805. Right? So it was the end of Nelson's life, but Nelson died a hero. Right? What the Battle of Trafalgar did was it, it completely uh, secured British supremacy on the seas. The French would never again mount a serious naval challenge to the English. Right? Now. Uh, however, 1805 was not just a negative year for Napoleon. If 1805 represents the year of Napoleon's ultimate defeat at sea and his humiliation at sea by the English, 1805 also represents the year of his greatest triumph on land, and that is the Battle of Austerlitz. While the English Navy was destroying his ships with their gunnery and with their superior seamanship, Napoleon's armies, with their superior tactics and superior strategic command, had encircled the combined Russian and Austrian forces at Austerlitz in Austria, where they destroyed them utterly. Napoleon himself would, was later heard to say, Austerlitz was the finest battle I ever fought. Right? Now, it's after Austerlitz in 1805 that Napoleon's uh, Napoleon's power on continental Europe is utterly unchecked, utterly and completely unchecked, and his ambition, which was great before, it now knows no bounds, right? We see Napoleon engaged after the Battle of Austerlitz in these unbelievably grandiose schemes, grandiose schemes of conquering all of the East or, you know, forging alliances with the Persians, with the Turks, forging alliances in India. Napoleon clearly envisions him as, himself as potentially ruling a global empire, right? He sees himself at this point as the new Alexander, right? And even as new coalitions against him are formed in Europe, he defeats every single one of them. In 1806, he defeats the, the fourth coalition, right? In 1807, Napoleon decides to even go further. He decides that it's not just his enemies that he needs to conquer, but his allies as well. Now, Here's how that works, okay? You know that the English have been blockading France, right, in a way that's, that's prevented the French from receiving supplies by sea, right? The English blockades have been very effective. Napoleon had been retaliating against the English with something that he called the continental system, right? Continental system. What that means, what this is, is an economic boycott of England, right? that Napoleon envisioned as a way of starving the island nation into submission, right? He prevented anyone on the continent from trading with, with the English, right? There were very few countries that dared to defy Napoleon's continental system. One of these was Portugal, 
the Kingdom of Portugal refused to comply with the continental system. And so in 1807, Napoleon invaded with the support of Spain. Now, under the pretext of um, assisting the Spaniards, Napoleon decided to thank his wonderful, loyal, steadfast ally, Spain, by deposing their king and replacing the king of Spain, Charles IV, with his own brother, Joseph Bonaparte, right? and placing his brother-in-law, Joaquim Murat, on the throne of Portugal. Right? And so what Napoleon does here is he takes Madrid, right? takes control of Spain, places his brother on the throne, and now Napoleon's ambition begins to unravel him because now he has to fight a guerrilla war in Spain. Right? This is the beginning of the so-called Peninsular War. Right? Napoleon's invasion of Portugal and his um, betrayal of the crown of Spain actually allow the English to enter, gain a foothold on the peninsula, uh, and Napoleon's armies in Spain are then, from 1807 on, for the rest of Napoleon's career, they're forced to fight a brutal, bloody guerrilla war against Spanish and Portuguese fighters, uh, against you know, farmers that will just come off the farms and shoot some French soldiers and then go home, you know, as well as English regulars that move around the peninsula, evade Napoleon's forces, uh, organize the irregulars, organize the guerrillas, encourage resistance to the Napoleonic government in the peninsula. The, the beginning of the Peninsular War is the beginning of the end for Napoleon. He himself didn't realize this, though. Right. In 1809, Napoleon decided to punish the papacy for also refusing to comply with his continental system. Right. So in 1809, Napoleon's soldiers entered the Papal States, captured Pope Pius VII, brought him back to France, and held him in prison, dragging him from, from place to place, treating him very badly, sometimes while he was ill. Right? As a result, Napoleon found himself excommunicated from the church. Right? <laughs> now, as you can imagine, why? This is also the time, around, right around this time, that Napoleon also gets divorced. And he, he pulls a Henry VIII here, too, grabs himself another wife, which, you know, increases his tension with the local church, even more so than his treatment of the Pope. Let's put it that way. Uh, but here's the thing. Napoleon, at this point, is invincible. He's absolutely invincible, right? He says to himself, nothing can stop me. Napoleon, even very, very infamously, he said, what, will the Pope's sentence of excommunication cause the pikes to fall from my soldiers' hands? Is that possible? No, he said. And yet that's precisely what would happen when Napoleon invaded Russia. Right. Napoleon's ambition led him to seriously contemplate the insane plan of invading the Russian Empire. Right. By 1811, it became clear to Napoleon that the continental system was not being observed by the Tsar Alexander. So finally, in 1812, right, uh, advisors to Tsar Alexander encouraged him to invade the French Empire to reassert his control over Poland. In return, Napoleon expanded his grand army, right, the Grande Armée, to almost half a million men. Right? So both sides are rattling their sabers. Both sides are making preparations for conflict. In the meantime, what are Napoleon's advisors saying to him? Napoleon's advisors are telling him explicitly, whatever you do, do not invade the Russian heartland. Whatever you do, don't do that. It doesn't work. 
You can't do it. Napoleon's response, don't tell me that I can't do anything. Right? Napoleon will not be told at this point that there's anything that he can't do. Right? So, finally, Napoleon assembled a force large enough, massive enough, he felt, to invade the Russian Empire invincibly. Right? He made his way to Moscow by the 7th of September, 1812, where the Russians battled him, right? And the Russians lost 44,000 men in a single day, while the French lost 35,000 men, right? One of the bloodiest days of battle in the history of man up to that point for a single day of fighting, right? Although the French had won, uh, the Russian army, in fact, won a, a sort of a moral victory by accepting and withstanding this major decisive battle, which Napoleon had hoped would, be, would decide the outcome of the war, Right, Napoleon himself later said, the most terrible of all my battles, and I quote, was the one before Moscow. The French showed themselves worthy of victory, but the Russians showed themselves worthy of being invincible. Right. What did the Russians do after this battle? After losing this battle before Moscow, the Russian army simply withdrew and retreated past Moscow to the east and north. Napoleon enters the city of Moscow, assuming that the capture of Moscow ends the war. But what happens? Right? Rather than capitulate, the local municipal government in Moscow burned the city to the ground. Right? After about a month, right, Napoleon found himself with winter coming on. A Russian winter in a burned out city with no food supplies, no crops, no supply lines that stretched back to, to Western Europe. Right? And so he decided to begin a ruinous, disastrous retreat in the cold heart of the Arctic Russian winter. Right? And by the time he got out of Russia with this army, crossed his frontiers back into Western Europe, Napoleon's army, which had set out as roughly half a million men, half a million crack regulars, ended up being fewer than 40,000. No. Yeah. This is, uh, someone just said the word genocide. It almost is a genocide of his own army on Napoleon's part. This results in a, what you might imagine, a lull in the fighting in the winter between 1812 and 1813, right? The Russians and the French rebuild their forces, right? Napoleon, by 1813, was able to field an army of 350,000 troops, right? However, his losses would continue to mount, right? Napoleon went and fought at Leipzig, where he lost 90,000 men, right? Withdrew back into France, right? Finally, his army was reduced from 350,000. The second Grand Armée reduced down to about 70,000 soldiers, while 40,000 stragglers were simply left by the sides of the road, right? while a quarter of a million Allied troops from the Prussians and the Russians and the Austrians pursued them back into France. Right? Finally, finally, Paris was captured by this coalition of allies, and Napoleon had decided by the spring of 1814 that his capitulation was the only course of action that he had left to him. And so Napoleon declared on the 11th of April, 1814, the Allied powers, having declared that Emperor Napoleon was the sole obstacle to the restoration of peace in Europe, Emperor Napoleon, faithful to his oath, declares that he renounces for himself and his heirs the thrones of France and Italy 
and that there is no personal sacrifice, even that of his life, which he is not ready to give in the interests of France. Right? Given in the palace of Fontainebleau, 11th of April, 1814. Right? So what do you do with a deposed emperor? What do you do? Right? What do you do? You take him and you put him on an island in the Mediterranean. An island called Elba. This was an island of some 12,000 inhabitants, about 10 miles off the coast of Italy, right? Safely out of the way. They gave Napoleon sovereignty over this island. They allowed him to retain his imperial title. Napoleon, being depressed by this, popped a suicide pill that he had carried for years. The suicide pill, in the meantime, had lost whatever potency it once had. <laughs> and he survived. Maybe felt a little sick, but survived, right? Now, uh, in the meantime, in, in his f the few months he spends on Elba, he creates a, a little Elban army and navy and, and uh, actually mines some iron. He issued decrees on agriculture. He tried to legislate like with this little emperor of Elba, right? He, he really liked being an emperor, right? Now... This lasted until the 26th of February, 1815. Right. Napoleon was aware of rumors. Rumors that said troublesome and disturbing things. There was a rumor that he was to be exiled from Elba and sent to some distant rocky island in the South Atlantic. He didn't like that idea. Right. And so in February of 1815, he escaped from Elba and landed at Golf Juan on the French mainland. Right. And so the 5th Regiment of the French army was sent to intercept him, and they made contact just south of Grenoble on the 7th of March, 1815. Napoleon approached this regiment alone. He dismounted his horse and walked to within gunshot range of the 5th Regiment and said, here I am. Kill your emperor if you wish. And the soldiers responded, vive l'empereur, vive l'empereur. Right. They turned around and marched with him to, pa to Paris. The restored French king, the Bourbon, Louis XVIII, grandson of Louis XVI, simply flees. Right? He has absolutely no other alternative. Right? And so the other European powers, Great Britain, the Netherlands, Russia, Austria, Prussia, all of them declare Napoleon to be an outlaw, an enemy of the peace, and they field an army of 150,000 men to end his rule. Right? Napoleon actually arrives in Paris on the 20th of March. He governed for a period that is called by the French Les Cent Jours, the Hundred Days. Right? For the Hundred Days, he raised an army. About 200,000 men came together to fight for Napoleon. Right? He met the Allied army in Belgium. Right? The Allied army led by the Duke of Wellington and the Prussian Gebhard Leberecht von Blücher at Waterloo in Belgium. Right? Finally... Napoleon met his match militarily, right? His army was defeated by the Prussians and the English, left the field in disorder. Napoleon himself was captured and placed on board a British man of war. Now Napoleon's real exile begins as he was sent, of course, to a distant island in the Atlantic, St. Helena. You know, St. Helena is a thousand miles from the nearest land, right? And he was kept there safely until his death. Now, there's all kinds of questions about Napoleon's death. Napoleon's death in 1821, 
was, it, it's one of these bizarre things. His health had begun to fail rapidly. He met with his priest. Um, you know, he, his, he had these very strange last words. His last words were, France, armée, tête d'armée, and Josephine. Right? Josephine was his first wife. The second wife, uh, I guess when you're dying, you mention your first wife. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So, the cause of death has been debated to this day. There's all kinds of conspiracies about whether Napoleon was assassinated or what. But the point is, right, once Napoleon is out of the picture, once he's on St. Helena, once he's exiled from Europe, right, the last six years of his life are really meaningless, right? He still claimed to be called emperor. He still demanded to be buried with an imperial title, which was denied him by his jailers on St. Helena. He was later buried uh, under the Orléans monarchy in 1840. He was, his body was brought back to France in a black ship, and he was buried uh, in Paris with full honors. He was buried as an emperor and all of that many years later. Right? But once Napoleon is exiled in 1815, once he's exiled for good, the question that the other European powers are faced with is this much deeper, very profound, naughty, and difficult political question, which is, how do we put Europe back together after what Napoleon has done? Right? If you take a look at the totality of what Napoleon had done, he had destroyed every political institution on continental Western Europe. He had destroyed the Spanish and Portuguese monarchies. Right? He had destroyed the French revolutionary government, which had taken over for the French monarchy. He had destroyed all of the states that had comprised the Holy Roman Empire in Germany. He had destroyed Switzerland. He had destroyed Italy. He had stripped the Pope of his political power. He had destroyed most of Austria, right? most of what had been the Austrian Empire, the Netherlands and Belgium, all of the lands of Europe, Savoy, Piedmont, all of these independent kingdoms and states had been refounded as parts of other political entities on completely different, artificially introduced enlightenment principles. Right? And so how do you fix that? How do you turn back the clock on what Napoleon has done to Europe? Right? Now, the, the European powers, therefore, had gathered at the time of Napoleon's first exile right, at something called the Congress of Vienna. Now, the Congress of Vienna, uh, which was led by this great conservative Austrian prince Metternich. They continued to meet throughout 1815. And the debate is, what do we do with Europe politically after what Napoleon has done? How do we turn back the clock? They decided to rely on a principle that they called legitimacy. All right? The principle of legitimacy was this. We are simply going to redraw the political map to, ref to reflect the realities of 1789. All right? We're simply going to turn back the clock to 1789. If there was a kingdom or a state that existed in 1789, we will reconstitute it. Its legitimate prince will be put back in power. So the prince of Baden or the, the king of Savoy or the, you know, whatever, king of Sardinia, whoever, it will be put back in power in his little state. Uh, the house of Bourbon will be put back in power in Spain. The French branch of the house of Bourbon will be put back in power in France. The Portuguese dynasty that was there before Napoleon's time will be restored. Right? Everything will be turned back to pre-1789 conditions. 
Right? And so this is forcibly done by the Congress of Vienna. They do their best with this. The problem is this concept of legitimacy that's introduced in, in 1815 at the Congress of Vienna uh, is simply not enough to undo everything that Napoleon has done. Right? The madness for revolution, right? the, the, the custom of revolutionary institutions, the, the yoke of, of these princes and kings once it's been thrown off, it's pretty hard to reimpose. It's pretty hard to reimpose this on the new elites, on the new fat cats, on the new rulers and governors in each little locale. Right? And it's very, very hard, therefore, to turn the clock back to 1789. As a result, the search for a principle, an organizing principle, on which to base European government and society goes on throughout the 19th century. Right? The rest of the 19th century can be seen as kind of a response to the Congress of Vienna. Right? And the way it's sorted out is very, very interesting because the, the principle that's adhered to eventually by the majority of states in the rest of the 19th century right, is not one of pre-1789 legitimacy, nor is it a principle based on anything that would have been recognized in Europe in the Middle Ages and the early modern period, neither religion, nor culture, nor tradition. Right? Instead, the principle that's introduced in the 19th century and catches on like wildfire is this utterly novel principle of nationalism. Right? The world of nationalism only begins relatively recently in human history. Right? And to understand the modern world, you have to understand how artificial nationalism is. Right? The idea that there is something called a nation that exists, that has its own soul, its own character. Right? The idea that there's a kind of a natural German nation or a natural French nation, that political boundaries shouldn't separate one part of the, this nation from another. Right? And that no two nations can be put together in the same state. This is an entirely new idea in the 19th century, and it guides the turmoil of the 19th century, which is racked by revolution after revolution after revolution. Right? And this nationalism of the 19th century is what culminates in the First and Second World Wars right? and creates the problems that the world is still grappling with today. Right? And so Napoleon's conquests echo throughout history and throughout time. Right? And that's all we can really say for now. But there we are. Very good, very good. I want to thank Father uh, Greenhall for uh, opening the doors of St. Anne's to the Institute of Catholic Culture and uh, all the Christians here. So we're going to take a, a quick uh, three to five minute break. There's some more snacks over there that you can get, and we'll come back for uh, just a quick five minutes. All right. Again, our regular uh, our regular rules apply: five minutes of question and answer, uh, maximum of five questions. Make sure your question is one sentence and has a question mark on the end. Yes, sir. Go ahead. What's the alternative to nationalism? Oh boy, uh, good question. Well. I, one can answer that two ways, right? On the one hand, um, you can look at the way the world was before there was such a thing as nationalism. Before there's such a thing as nationalism, uh, the idea of a state and some kind of ethnic or linguistic um, homogeneous entity, uh, those are two separate things, right? You could have a state like 
uh, like the Habsburg Empire, for example, that embraces vast territories, that embraces people who speak 40 different languages, right? Many different religious traditions within the Habsburg Empire, right? You have Western and Eastern Christianity all together in there. And, and uh, the reason why you could have that and have it work before nationalism is because there wasn't this obsession with uh, the kind of government centralization that you see in the 18th and 19th centuries, right? So when most of your government is local, when you, if you're a peasant who lives in Bohemia and you speak Bohemian, right, it doesn't matter that you're ultimately ruled by the Habsburgs. You don't even necessarily know that because the government that you have contact with is your local government, right? The reality that you're in contact with on a daily basis is your local reality, right? Now, when you have this, this aggressive centralization of governments that want to have, where the central government wants to have direct contact with each and every one of its subjects, right, in order to aggrandize and enhance the power of the central government, this is where you need a different kind of organizing principle, right? And in the 19th century, you can't turn to religion anymore as an organizing principle, right? Especially in a place like Germany, where, you, where it's half Catholic and half Protestant, right? Uh, or even, even in a place like France, right? You have sizable religious minorities. You can try to use religion as part of it, but, but you can't turn to religion as a unifying element uh, in the way that you used to be able to do. So you have to look for some other element, right? And not that anyone was particularly interested in terms of European elites in the 19th century. No one's particularly interested in, in turning to religion as a unifying element. And so what they turn to is they turn to things like language, things like a, a myth of a shared common history, which is usually more myth than reality, and, and out comes the concept of a nation, right? The idea of, of a German nation, for example, that's being bandied about in the, the middle and, and second half of, of the 19th century. Well, even, even early 19th century, even in the 1820s, you see it a little bit. The, but the, this idea of a German nation, for example, it's this completely mythical thing. But the idea that German people are bound together by their German language and their German identity, and that the boundaries of the German nation should coincide with the boundaries of the German state, that's an entirely new idea. Now, in terms of an alternative to it at the time, well, the alternative to it would have been older models. Right, older models of sovereignty, uh, but those are in the process of being discarded as government changes, as, as new technology is introduced, as new ideology is introduced, uh, as older forms of unity erode in European society, as religion erodes in European society. Right? Nationalism fills the vacuum. Now today, is there an alternative to nationalism? Uh, unfortunately, there is, and it's bad. And uh, it, it's the, the kind of globalistic internationalism that we see uh, being promoted today. And, and that's apparently where we're headed. You know, the, the idea of a global elite that will govern the globe, right? Uh, and, and that we're all united just by our common humanity. And, and therefore, we should somehow be under a common state or a common world government that oversees things in, in various ways. Uh, this has definitely been the trend since the Second World War, for sure, but, but even going back farther than that. Uh, and that's the alternative that you'd see today to nationalism. How did the Napoleon finance his wars? How did Napoleon finance his wars? With great difficulty. Um, one of the problems with financing these wars in the 18th and 19th centuries is that you don't have the sort of deceptive, very efficient system of, of deficit spending 
that we have today. Uh, you know, you certainly don't have that if you're Napoleon. You have something kind of like it. The, the French Revolutionary government issued paper money that was backed by confiscated church land, right? And, uh, and this is how they paid for a lot of things. Uh, but in Napoleon's case, no, it's, it's with great difficulty. Um, he has fleets of ships in the West Indies that are loaded with treasure and, and valuable things that he wants to bring back to France, but he has a lot of trouble doing that because he doesn't control the seas, right? So in, in Napoleon's case, war is simply funded by military success, right? In other words, on the one hand, squeezing France itself dry, but on the other hand, the more conquests you make, the more land you have that you can squeeze dry and fund, in turn, you know, further conquests. Uh, so it, it's with great difficulty. He, he has an enormous amount of trouble doing that. He's always on the brink of bankruptcy, if that makes sense. So. How did Napoleon's uh, ideas and concepts and nationalism affect the United States and its growth and development? Oh, the United States was affected enormously by nationalism, not directly by Napoleon necessarily, but by the, the broader trend of 19th century nationalism. We, we go through that in the Civil War. Uh, I mean, the Civil War is what determines for us whether we're going to be a nation state in the 19th century sense. And, of course, we know how that one went down. All right, so that, that's, that's where we get hit with this, this strong nationalism. You can see the tensions in American politics in the 19th century you know, prior to the Civil War, where you have some who clearly see the U.S. as something that should be this sort of a, a centrally administered nation state. Um, but then that's determined by force of arms in the 1860s. Would you say that the British form of government is more efficient than our democratic form of government? The British form of government today? Well, I guess I'm not entirely sure what you mean. Do you mean having a parliamentary system instead of something like what we have? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'd say it's six to one, half dozen the other, in, in the sense that um, in Britain, the, the main thing that distinguishes them from us is not so much the fact that they have a parliamentary system as opposed to um, uh, you know, a bicameral system the way that we do. What distinguishes them from us in a more concrete way is the fact that they have a f they're further advanced on the road to uh, this kind of neo-socialistic welfare state than we are. And, and I'd say that that's probably a more distinctive element of Britain today as opposed to the U.S. They have, they have, and in all sorts of ways. But the, in terms of efficiency, it, it's hard to even say what, what one means because neither England nor the U.S. is, is very efficient. Uh, in order to kick people out of office, you mean? Yeah, but, uh, you know, the, the British historian Syme always said, whatever form of government you have, there's an oligarchy that, loks, that, that lurks beneath, if you will. That there's an oligarchy that lurks behind the curtain. And, um, you know, you can sort of see that today in, in British politics. It, it, it's not like... It's not like it functions in a very ideal way with no confidence votes that cast people out of office. You know, it, it's all driven by the same kind of politics that drives things here, uh, which is the politics of playing to the passions of, of people. And um, so I, I'd say the systems are more similar than they are different. The, the differences are cosmetic, if that makes sense. I don't know. So, so people who know more about this might, might dispute that, but I don't know. Oh, Sabatina? Why did the uh, European leaders exile Napoleon as opposed to just assassinating him? As opposed to just assassinating him? Well, because y you have to remember, you have to remember here, 
Um, this was still a time when European gentlemen uh, viewed it as an obligation to treat one another honorably. Right? Um, the Napoleonic Wars, th this is still the time when after, the, after a battle, um, after a naval battle, the, the victorious officers would have dinner with the defeated officers on board their ship and, and they would see that they were treated very comfortably and, and given the best wine and, and the best cuts of meat and stuff and you, you treat your vanquished opponent very honorably. Uh, and so even when Napoleon is imprisoned um, at uh, St. Helena, um, there's enormous pressure in the British Parliament. You, you see figures like Lord Holland in the British Parliament stepping up and demanding that Napoleon be treated um, better than he's being treated. <laughs> right? you have, they have a lot of sympathy for Napoleon in as a defeated figure uh, among the, the upper classes and, and even the lower classes. In London, in 1818, there was a rumor published by the Times of London that Napoleon had escaped. It was a false rumor, um, but the citizens of London like lit bonfires and stuff. Like, Napoleon's escaped. <laughs> it was almost like th this romantic thing. Um, so, so yeah, definitely there's a sense that Napoleon has to be treated with all the courtesy and honor due to his rank as an emperor at the time. Um, during the revolution, how could they uh, have an effective army with all the chaos? Once again, with great difficulty. Um, the, uh, the French revolutionary government in its more chaotic periods actually used the chaos as part of a, a rationale in, in public propaganda for encouraging army recruitment. Right? They, they used the chaos to say, uh, la patrie est en danger, right? the, the, the fatherland is in danger, and therefore uh, we can have a conscription, we can force young men all over France uh, under pain of death to join the army and then use the army to put down whatever elements are causing unrest here. So the unrest actually sort of provides them with a rationale to do military recruitment in a sense. So. Yeah. Well, it's once again with, with enormous difficulty. I mean, the, the, the French revolutionary state is always on the verge of bankruptcy. So, yeah.